Like Robert said, my name is Chris, and I am taking our last and final swing at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, all summer, we've been going through this amazing, most famous sermon of all time. Um, you know, it's, it's probably the most well-known sermon, but I think the most least understood, and we're going to dive into that again. Um, we looked last week at how much, how much sentimentality surrounds this sermon. People of all different faiths and backgrounds and perspectives. Like, oh, what a wonderful sermon the Sermon on the Mount is. What a wonderful ethical, moral, you know, treatise that should just, we should all just live by it, shouldn't we? You know, and that's kind of the, the pithy, sentimental attitude we have toward it. And, and people that typically have that kind of, oh, what a wonderful, just pleasant picture of the Christian life. Um, you've never read it, if that's the way you respond. Um, we looked last week at how the, uh, how the, the audience, Jesus' first audience for the Sermon on the Mount, you guys would be a later audience, but the first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, sitting on that gentle slope on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee with swaying grasses and all of that, the original audience, um, they were shocked. They were in awe. They were dumbfounded when he was finished these words. They weren't like, oh, what a wonderful message. They could not speak when it was over. Um, and we're going to find out again this week why that's the case. Um, this is one of the most difficult passages um, that I've ever had to preach on. This is one of the most difficult texts that we've dealt with as a church to date. And um, so I just want to kind of give you a warning. This is, this is not, you know, this, this is not going to be your, um, the easiest ride ever. It reminds me actually of... Um, airplane trip I took all the way from Nigeria back to the United States. I'd spent a year overseas. I'd spent a year in Israel and about four months in Nigeria. And, I, and it was time for me to come home. And I was, I was flying back. I, fl- I went from Nigeria to Italy, from Italy to, to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv in Israel. And then I flew to Washington, D.C. And I was getting ready to fly home. And, and I'd had a wonderful trip. It was easy. You know, I'd flown halfway around, around the world. And I'm like, great, fine, everything's been wonderful. Well, it's this 45-minute flight from D.C. to Richmond on one of these mosquitoes they call airplanes, right? The propeller jets, no, not jets, propeller planes. And it was in the middle of a huge thunderstorm. And so in the middle of this thunderstorm, if you've ever flown in one of them, you literally drop hundreds of feet in an air, and your stomach is still way up here. And you're just, you're riding through this thing. And, and I'm like, great, I have flown all the way halfway across the world just to die over top of 95, right? So anyway, this is, this is kind of like that. There, there, there was this lady who was sitting next to me who didn't like to fly, was terrified of flying anyway. <laughs> So I'm like, it just, you know, she grabs onto my arm, right? Squeezes my arm the entire time. I mean, and I'm like, we'll get through this together. Just help yourself, you know. We're, you know, um, so grab a neighbor, you know, for this, right? Buckle your seatbelt. This is this is going to be a rough landing. Um, so just a little heads up. Don't run out here screaming just just yet. So let me let me read our text today, and we will we will get to work. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. The words should pop up on the screen. Um, but feel free to grab a Bible if you need one. Um, to, we'll be jumping on a little bit, but grab a Bible on one of those tables right there. And um, here we go. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is then cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the text we'll be spending most of our time on this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many miracles, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them, I'm sorry, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell. And great was its fall. This is God's word. Um, The big question again is, how do we enter the kingdom of God? We come here to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and this, it's almost like Jesus said everything he said just so he can say this. The question is, how do we enter the kingdom of God? And the scariest thing underlying this, and even as we looked at last week, the scariest thing is that many will be deceived into thinking they are going to enter the kingdom of God on that day. Many are deceived to think that they have entered the kingdom of God, even now. But yet, Jesus will say to them and will say to us, I never knew you. So we know that there are, Jesus is not wasting his words. There are people in his first hearing that were deceived. And I know in a room this size that there may be some people here that are just as deceived. And I am shuddering to talk through this, but we're dealing with God's words this morning. I did not pick this text, right, okay? This is in the process of the sermon we've been in all summer. This This is where we are. So last week, we looked at the two gates, and we looked at the two ways. And it's quite possible for one to think, we looked at last week, that you are, at, you are on the narrow way, but you're actually on the broad way that leads to destruction. And here we have the example of two trees. Many of us might think that, hey, we are bearing good fruit, but Jesus is saying, beware. You may actually be seen as bearing rotten fruit and you'll be cut down. Or with the, or with the two houses. These two houses are in the same place, doing the same thing. They are, look just alike. But what Jesus is saying here is that you may not be built on Christ. 
And he's saying that there are disciples here. There are false disciples and there are real disciples. And even as followers of Christ, we may be convinced that we will enter into the kingdom of God one day, but we could be deceived. And I don't mean people out there. I mean us. I mean us. So the stakes are high in this, right? I mean, if you're at the poker table, I mean, all of our chips are moving to the center of the table on this one. If Jesus has, if there are any words that we should figure out from Jesus what they really mean, these are it. So let's do some work. Here are the three questions um, that I believe we should answer that the text asks us. It says, we need to say, who are these people that presume to enter into the kingdom of God, but yet Jesus will in the end say, I never knew you. Who are these people? What are they like? Then we're gonna have to answer, okay, am I like these people? (laughs) We're We're gonna ask ourselves some tough questions this morning. Are we these people? And thirdly, what does it really mean to be a Christian then? If these guys aren't it, then what does it really mean to be a Christian? Let's, let's look. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, but I will declare to them, I never knew you. Look at what, these, look at what they say to Jesus. They say, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? What does this mean? This means that these are professing Christians. These people are baptized. These people are members of a church. They have taken Christ's name upon them. Everything from the outside would look like they really belong to Jesus. Look, they say, Lord. They say, Lord. They know know who Jesus is. They're not confused. They call him Lord, which is really, the the, the Greek there doesn't mean yes, sir. It means God. We're saying that Jesus is God. We're saying that these are people that have good theology. They are orthodox Christian thinkers. Their doctrine is good. Then they say, Lord, Lord, right? In Hebrew, when you want to put an exclamation point on something or show real emotion, you don't have any punctuation in Hebrew. So what do you do? You repeat the word. And so by saying, Lord, Lord, they're saying we have emotion, we are zealous. These are, so these are people that, that profess to be Christians. They're people that have right doctrine. They even have, are zealous and they have right affections. They have Christian affections. They're not just dead, they're passionate Christian people. Then they say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do mighty works? These are not just people that sit, these are people doing active ministry. Prophesy, these are people that deliver spiritual messages. These are people that teach the Bible. Okay? Do many mighty works. There's a sense of supernatural stuff about them. There's, there, there's a sense of the miraculous about their life. There's stuff happening around them and, and to their life that you would say only God can do that. They're casting out demons. That, that means that, that their ministry, what they're doing is actually causing spiritual freedom for people. <laughs> what does he say to them? I never knew you. You've done all these things, but yet I don't know you. What, what, what is he saying? He's not saying, like, I don't know of you, right? He's saying, no, it, it's, it's like it says in John 17, 3. Jesus is saying, and this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. 
What he's saying to them is you don't have eternal life. You, don't, you, you aren't known redemptively by God. You don't belong to him. So we've got our doctrine right. We've got, we're excited about him. We're an active ministry. But he says that we are not his. That's the possibility. Now, if you're anything right now like I've been all week, you are scared. You must be thinking, oh my goodness, wait, are you serious? Someone can be doing all these things, someone can believe all these things and still not even know God or be known by him. This is meant to be scary. Jesus, at the end of this sermon, is saying this isn't about ethics, this isn't about ideas, this is about me and you. So there's an arrow pointed at our hearts this morning at all of us. You must be thinking, how is this possible for someone to do spiritual good for people, but yet be devoid to not have the spirit? I mean, it has to take your breath away. Um, and I don't, know, I, have, I don't think I have a really good, thorough answer for how that's possible, but I do have two examples. You'll remember one of the apostles, Judas, Numbered among the 12, ate with Jesus, walked with Jesus, ministered with Jesus. He was sent with 72 others before Jesus. As Jesus was going around the north, the north end of Israel, he was, he was circling, going through cities, and he sent 72 of his followers before him to kind of prepare the way, to, pr- to proclaim the kingdom of God, to, what he said, heal the sick and raise the dead. And they, all the disciples came back and said, wow, this was amazing what happened through our hands. That was Judas. He was among them. Look at Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. From all intents and purposes, from everything, how would you say, this is a man of God? In fact, when he would actually prophesy with the prophets, when they would get words from God and they would communicate God's word to people, he would prophesy with them. But in the end, if you know the story, He turns away from God and loses the kingdom and dies absolutely alone and by himself and in the end is consulting witches and completely lost. Never knew him. So here we have the fact that God can put his spirit and power on anyone based on the context and based on his purposes, but yet they're only spiritual gifts. Here's the distinction I wanna make for us. Spiritual gifts have to do with things that we do spiritual fruit born of the gospel being believed and trusted in cannot be faked love joy peace patience kindness isn't what we do it's who we are so he's saying that you can you can be active in spiritual gifts and ministry and have no spiritual fruit that show that you belong to me or the gospel has made any difference in your heart. Now, I know this is shocking, but let me, let me take us back. Remember last week we talked about, Jesus has been talking about this in this entire section. We talked about the two roads, the end, we, we talked about the narrow gate and the broad gate. And we said, guess what? These lead to two paths, the narrow way and the broad way. And it's not what we think. 
It's not that the narrow way that leads to life is for all the good people doing moral things like praying and giving and, and reading their Bibles and obeying the Ten Commandments and, and wanting to follow Jesus by, by obeying him. And then people on the Broadway, this is not what it's like, but this is what we think. We think on the Broadway as far as the immoral people, the irreligious people, the people that don't care, people that aren't praying, giving, and fasting. But we find that's not the case in the whole Sermon on the Mount. The person that's on the narrow way or the Broadway, they're both praying. The person that's on the narrow or the Broadway, they're both fasting. The, the person that's on the Broadway to destruction is giving. But what we see is that they're giving for two totally different reasons. The one on the Broadway is not giving for God's sake. He's actually giving for his own sake. And everything that he does is not for other people and not for God, but it's for himself. He gives in a condescending way and self-congratulates himself when he gives. Go back and read that section in the Sermon on the Mount. Or the person that, that, is, that is praying. You see the person that's praying on the narrow way is actually conscious of God and humble before God. And the person that's on the Broadway praying is actually more conscious of other people and everyone around him. And he's praying in loud words so that people can know what he's doing. They're both praying. From the outside, they look just the same. So it's no shock that Jesus now would say then, those that belong to me and those that do not belong to me can be doing the exact same things. And this is the pointedness of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the terrifying thing about these words today. So that's who these people are. Now, we need to do some work on are we like these people? How much are we like these people? And if you please understand me, you know, many of you know me, you know my personality. I am not after causing anybody any unnecessary fears and doubts this morning. I, I want you to be comforted But this could be true of any single one of us. This, and with all honesty, could be true of me. This could be true of me. And I wanna take this time to say if, as we say these things, as we put, as we examine ourselves, and as we ask, are we really the Lord's, I do not want any of us to say, well, of course, of course. I can think of all of the things that I can point to to prove that I belong to Jesus or that I know him and he knows me. There is no of courseness about it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And, 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 if, and if we do not, if we are resistant to examining ourselves like this, you are the very person that Jesus is asking to examine yourself because it is so easy, it is so easy when we have something to hide to not ask the tough questions. Anybody who's not gonna, is, who cannot take time to examine himself often has something to hide. And I understand it. There's a lot on the line with this question, right? Not belonging to Jesus, like ever. <laughs> Like, not that you were his and you fell away. No, you've never belonged to Jesus. This is, this is huge. And I know the stakes are high. But we fear what's gonna happen if the truth comes out. We fear, what if I am not really 
the Christian I say I am, or even worse, what if I am not who I think I am? Here's the thing with deception. Those that are deceived don't know they're deceived. So let's look at Jesus' words and deal honestly with the doubts and fears that we have. So that's, that's the first way, examining, testing. Guys, know that doubting yourself and testing yourself is not wrong. It's not a rejection of the faith. It's actually an embracing of truth. It's not unhealthy. In fact, if we're not willing to examine ourselves, then we could be deceived. Beware of things, number two. Let's beware of things that masquerade or pretend to be Christian fruit. These guys had orthodox theology. They, they, they could be excited about talking about the doctrines of the gospel. They, could, they might be able to exegete the entire Sermon on the Mount. And guys, isn't it so easy for us to talk about stuff? Isn't it so easy for us to talk about Christian truth and maybe even apologetics, proving things, why they're true, or talking about the nuances of doctrines? It is so easy to talk about that and not talk about what the gospel is actually doing in our souls. It's so easy to default to talking about stuff. This is why in, in, in our community gatherings, while, while, while we open the Bible and, and, and we look at texts, we are not primarily trying to study the Bible together. We are trying to let the Bible study us. And we are exposing to one another, not our thoughts, but what God is doing in here, right? That's what we, every time I start one of our community gatherings and I'm leading the discussion, I remind us, guys, this isn't the time to share your opinions. This isn't the time to share what you think this text means. This is a time for us to gather around what we know the text means and what it's doing in here. Because it's so easy just to talk about stuff and to never be known and to never really grasp, is the gospel making any difference? This is why we must continue to gather together in these smaller groups and things because you sitting here, just hearing this, you have no idea if it's making any difference. You have no idea if it's making any difference unless we work it out with one another, unless, unless there is some testing of it, some working into our lives. Because we can sit here and go, oh, that was a wonderful message or that was an awful message and we cannot get any of it. We need each other to help examine one another, to talk about our souls with. Ministry activities, we can get on with so many Christian things, even Redemption Hill, even this morning. We can, we can think that because we're serving, because we're zealous to do this or that, or to do setup or to work with the kids, that we can think, I must be doing something right. This must be a fruit of the gospel. But Jesus is saying here, guess what? None of that stuff is proof that you belong to me. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote an incredible book, or these were his sermons on this sermon, wrote this. And this, this phrase has stuck me to the wall all week long. So now I'm gonna stick you, ready? One of the greatest dangers of all the Christian life is that a man can live still on his own activities. Did we not do all this stuff in your name, they say. Notice, the, notice what it says, didn't we do all these things? 
There's a group of people coming to Jesus. There's a group there, right? And they're saying, didn't we do all these things? And this is another thing that can deceive us. We think, my friends are walking the narrow path. I know that my family belongs to God. I know my community is, is dealing with the gospel and understanding these things. And we can think that we are innocent by association with them. That just because we are getting on with people that really do get the gospel and people that do experience spiritual fruit and people that are enjoying Jesus, just because we get on with them means that we too are, belong to Jesus. And while that is certainly could be the case, it's not necessarily the case. In fact, one of the things about the narrow gate, right? We talked about this last week, is that it's so narrow only one person can go through at a time. We are certainly the people of God. We are certainly a dwelling place for God in the spirit. And when we join together relationally and as the church, there's something special and God is present there. But Jesus is after you. You, he's after your heart, not you plural, you singular. It's one person that's the tree. It's one person building the house. We can never say, didn't we? before God. We can mistake political passion for passion for Jesus. We can think, look at what I'm after. Look at the morality I want to see happen in the political realm. Look at the agenda. This must be God's agenda. We can think that we're passionate for Jesus. Doesn't mean we're not or we are. It's just not a substitute. Here's the thing that sticks me, right? We can be so passionate about the structures that help the church, the people grow. And this is the one that every, every person that does this, every person that puts their hand to this, this can be dangerous to think that look at all the great structures we have, look at all the things that people are experiencing, look at all the people that are coming and, and becoming part of what we do. This must mean that my spiritual gifts are bearing spiritual fruit and we can literally do it for all the wrong reasons. I can be doing this, I can be standing here, I can be talking here just enjoying my spiritual gifts at work and it could be nothing. It can mean absolutely nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's not get deceived into thinking that just because we're active in spiritual things and use spiritual gifts that we are bearing fruit that remains. I'm not saying that all these Christian things in the church and all the theology and the, and the apologetics and the talk and the serving in ministry, every Christian will do those things, okay? And I'm not saying they are dangerous. I'm saying to you and Jesus is saying to us, they can be dangerous for our souls because they can be a substitute and masquerade as passion for Christ because of what he's done. I hope you're hearing me. I hope this makes sense. I think one of the things that shocks me the most is how confident this group of people were when they approached Jesus. They were absolutely surprised at Jesus' reaction. And they were there. Let's, let's, let, let's dig deeper in, into the scene, right? So let's, let's look at what they said. But first of all, what gets me is, is, is their confidence. They, had, they, they, they weren't unsure. They were sure they were gonna enter the kingdom of God. This reminds me of the last couple nights, the Durocos, as a family, we've been watching a movie. 
long movie. It's taken two nights. We'll watch it tonight, probably two. And I know that many of you get to watch Superman at home, Batman, Thor, Captain America, right? You know what I get to watch at home? Pride and Prejudice. I've got five daughters. And I'm telling you, don't feel sorry for me, but I mean, we have had so much fun watching this movie, right? But let me tell you, there is no violence in this movie, right? Nobody gets blown up, nobody's chasing anyone. I, I, actually, if you want to take me out to go watch a real movie with blood and guts, I'd really appreciate that, right? But, but we don't, we haven't been watching that at home. It's pride and prejudice, okay? Um, and so let me talk to the girls here for a second. Guys, you'll just turn, turn me off. All right, you know what this whole movie's about, right? This whole movie is about, it's written by Jane Austen, or, sorry, the novel by Jane Austen, written about, the 1800, written about the 1800s in high society England, right? What's the whole, what, what's the whole book about? Who's going to marry who? The whole book. And then the bigger question is, now, are any of the women in this movie, are they going to marry for love? Or are they going to marry for money? That's the big question, right? And so one of the things that we have enjoyed so much is watching these buffoons of men, right, ask these women to marry them. And we know, right, we know that they're going to get refused, right? It is, it is awesome to watch this thing happen, right? Men, do not do this, okay? Know what she's going to say. <laughs> um, and one of the most explosive moments we've ever had as a Droka family watching kids was when last night this guy walked in, the, the antagonist, the guy that we knew was a scoundrel, and we knew she hated him, but he didn't know, and he was professing his love for her. And she asked, he asked her to marry, asked her to marry him, and in her most polite British English told him that he was an absolute imbecile, and then if, she, if he was the last man on earth, she would not even be seen with him. We laughed and howled and screamed. It was awesome. But it was part of this shock, right? It, all right just one other thing to go on, on, this, on this issue. Go online, do a search for failed marriage proposals in public. Oh my gosh. If you've ever seen this, some dude gets this woman on the middle of a basketball court in an NBA game, down on one knee, and you know what happens, right? She has no idea what's about to happen. He whips out the ring and she runs off the court crying and he is done, right? You have never felt two emotions so strongly before in your life. One, I feel so sorry for this guy. And second, he is such an idiot. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bizarre. So anyway, it's this shock of, like, part of what is going on here, the angst is that these people, just like these ne'er-do-well prospective fiancés, right, are totally shocked when they get the response of being rejected. Secondly, let's look at what they said. What are they saying? They're making a case for themselves. They are parading all their actions and their deeds before Jesus and say, isn't this enough? Doesn't this save us? And what we're seeing is that, is that these people are not looking to Jesus to save them at all. They are their own saviors and they've been earning their salvation, earning their place with God through every good thing they've ever done. 
They're not rooted in Christ. Their house is not built on Christ. It rests completely on their own merit. They're trying to prove that they were not so bad. So if this isn't it, if these guys aren't it, the guys with right doctrine, the guys with passion, the guys with Bible knowledge, the guys with doing fruitful ministry, if that's not it, then what is a Christian? What are we left with? Who is actually on the narrow way then? Well, look at me, look with me at verse 21. Jesus says it right here. The one who does the will of my Father will enter. And look at verse 24, he says, the one who hears these words of mine and does them. He's the one who's building his house on me. Okay, now if you've been paying attention though, you'll say, Chris, wait a minute, you just told me it doesn't, it's not first about doing, right? It's not first about doing. But then Jesus here pushes this issue of it's those that do the will of the Father, those that hear these words of mine and do them. And you would say, certainly these guys, certainly the folks before Jesus on that day were doing the will of God, right? They were, they were ministering. They were giving out words of life. They were seeing spiritual liberation happen. You would certainly say, isn't that the will of God? Isn't that what Jesus is talking about? Obviously not. To figure out what he's talking about, doing the will of my Father, first begins at where the whole sermon began. We're gonna look back at the Beatitudes and see what was he talking about? What does it mean to do the will of the Father? What does it mean to do these words? And here's what Jesus is saying, I'll, I'll give it to you up front. He's saying it is not about what we do. It is about what kind of person we are. Look with me back at chapter five, verse three. Jesus begins this sermon with the key to understanding and living out the entire thing. And look at the wisdom of Jesus in telling us about what kind of person we must be before he ever gives us any idea of what we must do. If we do not receive what Jesus is saying about what kind of person we have been made by grace, then the entire sermon will absolutely destroy us. Look at what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here it is. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones that enter. Those that belong to Jesus, those that are truly blessed are poor. Now, it is so easy for us to think, and I think this goes deeper in us than we would even know or even admit, that we would say this. You know, Chris, you're right. I've done some pretty bad things in my life. Some things I'm not proud of, some things that I regret. But you know what? I've also done some decent things. I've also done some good things. And so, I know that I've done wrong things, but. I haven't done everything wrong. Like, as long, I have done some good things. So I do have something in the bank, you know? I, I, and, and as long as I can keep my bank balance in the black above zero, then, then I must be okay. It's only a Christian or, or someone that's becoming a Christian knows this, 
that, it's, that being right with God is not about just not doing bad things, but it's about realizing that every reason we've ever done anything good adds to our bankruptcy. It is a liability, not an asset. Because if we're honest, we'll look at anything we've ever done good and see in it a measure of doing it for ourselves. And that's what Jesus is saying in, in, in our giving in the Sermon on the Mount. You didn't give to God, you gave to yourself because of what people would think of you when you did it. So a Christian is saying, the reason why I've done even good things don't matter. I'm not just barely keeping my nose above water. I am spiritually bankrupt. Only a Christian realizes that they are actually poor in spirit. We must beware all of our Christian activities, all of my Christian activities could simply be to fill up my bank and to make my case before Jesus who will one day say, I never knew you. We can't show Jesus our bank statement. It's bankrupt. We're poor. It's zero. So, Look at the next verse, it's so helpful. What does this bankrupt spirit cause? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those that enter the kingdom of God are those that have mourned. Those that have mourned. And this, this word, it, it, it's not something we like. It, it, and this word mourning, it doesn't mean crying. It doesn't mean sad or a tear or a moment of repentance. This is talking about a long state of depression. This is talking about sadness. This is talking about something that you cannot get over, even despair. Have we ever, have you ever, when was the last time I actually despaired about my sin? And, and I don't mean just being sorry for what we've, how we've wronged someone else. I, I don't mean re- regretting or having remorse or being sorry that I hurt someone. That's not what Jesus, that's not the kind of mourning that solicits Jesus' comfort. Here, here it is, guys. I, I said all, everything I've said to say this. Some of the greatest self-deception comes if we claim to have peace with God without ever having mourned over our own sin. George Whitfield, one of the English Puritans, wrote this, and I know that many of us think about Puritans as an- ancient people with no, con- with no connection with our day and age and you know, black hats, witch trials, and all that stuff, and, but I'm telling you, these guys may be removed from our context, but no one knows our hearts like these guys. This is what George Whitfield had to say about this very thing. He said, first then, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must see, feel, weep, bewail your actual transgressions, not against man, but against the law of God. Before you speak peace to your hearts, you must be brought to see, brought to believe what a dreadful thing it is to depart from the living God. Give me leave to ask you, he says, whether you know the time. And if you don't know exactly the time, do you know if there was a time when God wrote bitter things against you? When the arrows of the Almighty were within you, was the remembrance of your sins ever grievous? Was the burden of your sins intolerable to your thoughts? Did you ever see that God's anger might justly fall upon you on account of your actual transgressions against God? 
Were you ever in your life really sorry for your sins? My sins have gone over my head. Have you ever said that? They are too burdened. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. Have you ever experienced this? Did any such thing as this pass between God and your soul? If not, for Jesus Christ's sake, do not call yourselves Christians. You may speak peace to your hearts, but there is no peace. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that before I can comfort you, you must know this kind of mourning. We do everything to avoid it. We fill our lives with distractions. But if we have never been a sinner, if we've never allowed ourselves to be a sinner, both in private and in public, we have not done the will of God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. If we've never allowed ourselves to really be a sinner first, in both private and public, then we are not doing his words. So it's not doctrine, it's not profession, it's not active in ministry, it's not someone who does all these things. That's who we are. Poor in spirit. Those that are bankrupt in spirit mourn over their sin and receive true comfort. So what is, what's, what, what is our response gonna be if we know that we're bankrupt and we, and we have mourned over our sin? What's the result? It's the next verse. Actually, it's verse five. It says, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness and then we will be satisfied. Now, when you hunger for something, like let's say you're starving for food. Some of you know what this feels like. But if you're starving for food, what do you do? How do you, how, what do you do? You, you don't go down to Lowe's and get a packet of seeds and go to your backyard and plant a garden. You don't do that, right? And water it and wait for the next season to eat. Or you also don't, you don't get a job Wait for your first paycheck and go to the store and buy food. If you're starving, I mean really starving, what do you do? You cry out for intervention. You cry out for mercy. You cry out for someone to give you a gift. And that's what he's saying. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are done trying to create it ourselves. We're done appealing to anything but the mercy and the grace of God. I was thinking about who in the Bible worked through this the most. Who could really help us just get an idea of what this looks like? And Paul, I mean, it's, a, it's an easy example, but it's so good. I mean, Paul wrote half the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, the preacher Paul, the active minister Paul had an amazing spiritual pedigree both before and after becoming a Christian, had an amazing pedigree. Here's what he had to say. His righteous resume was impeccable, but he said he didn't have it either. He didn't have the righteousness that's required. <laughs> Just based on that alone, he did not know he belonged to God. This is what he said. He said, but whatever gain I had, I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss. This is Philippians chapter three. Maybe it's up on the screen, fantastic. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, or that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. It depends on faith. So, as we close, what's at stake for you? This is the question I've been asking myself. What's at stake for me if I were to admit that so much of what I do, so much of my Christian activity, so much of my spiritual gifts, so much of my good stuff, and maybe all of it, has been rooted in myself. And I'm a counterfeit. And I've been faking it the whole time. What's at stake for you if you were to admit that to yourself? What's at stake if you were to admit that to someone else? If you admitted that to the people that matter most, what would you lose? Reputation, respect, be considered a fake and a cheat, insincere. But unless we're willing to lose it, we are not poor in spirit. Unless we're willing to consider this, We are not mourning. We're not taking Jesus' words to heart. A Christian or, be, or someone becoming a Christian will let the entire thing go. All that we've done, all that we've built, we'll let it go. If you're not sure, let it go. If, if you know you've been faking, let it go. How? I know it feels like you're gonna lose it all. I know it feels like you're gonna lose everything. But how did, how did Paul do it? He said, it was because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It hurt him desperately to let go of his pedigree. It hurts us desperately to let go of any confidence in anything that we would put stock in that we've ever done. But Jesus is better. And guys, one day, one day it will fall. Just like, the, just like the guy building the house that's on the sand, the storms came, the storm's coming. One day, anything that we've ever done not rooted in the gospel, not rooted in what Jesus has done for us yet, but rooted in what we're trying to do for him and try to manufacture will be destroyed. It will be. So how do we know for sure that we belong to Christ and have his righteousness? Let us be willing to lose all things. Count them as rubbish. Put our faith and our trust and our hope in the only good sermon on the Mount doer, 
Jesus himself. Let's lose our reputation, let's lose our ego, let's lose all the things that we use for energy. Let's trust him, let's go to him. Let's put our faith in him. Let's pray, let's pray. God, I ask that you would take this time and that we would take this time to let you search our hearts. Um, God, may we feel, may we feel exposed to you and may we let your spirit dig deep in us this morning. God, may we also fall on your hands, fall in your arms for righteousness no longer depending on our own. God, do this work in us, we pray. Amen.